Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Hello. So it's another wonderful interview. And uh, here I am, Mel Rosenberg, your host uh, for the uh, New Books Network, NBN. And uh, I'm here interviewing another, yet another, remarkable Canadian, or, or Canadian, as the case may be. <laughs> uh, Anne Renault, welcome to the show. Thank you, and, and good morning. I, I understand that for you it's good evening, but here in Montreal it's pretty much good morning. Well, uh, good morning and good evening. It's, uh, the sun has gone down here in Israel, um, but uh, as you know, I'm a, a Canadian by birth and I grew up in Ottawa, so um, mm-hmm. next time you're on the show, bring some snow and we can... Uh... Oh, we've got a lot of that right now. We have in Jerusalem. We have some snow. Anyway, we're 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 here to talk about you, your life, and your recent book, which is called Gwendolyn's Pet Garden, mm-hmm. and it was just released a few months ago. It was. It was yeah. released in May um, by uh, Nancy Paulson Books, which yes, is an imprint yes. of Penguin. Yeah. That's remarkable. You, you've you've uh, done some wonderful books with Kids Can Press out of Toronto. Um, yes, Kids Can is wonderful to work with. Um, I did uh, The Boy Who Invented uh, the Popsicle, the cool science behind Frank Epperson's famous frozen treat. The cool and science, was that your pun? The cool science? <laughs> I love alliteration. Uh, but it was their suggestion, actually, to include science experiments, which I thought was brilliant. Um, they also did uh, The True Tale of a Giantess, the story of Anna Swan, who happens to be a Canadian giant. And the third one was, and this is the Japanese version because I, I ran out of the English, which is uh, Mr. Crumb's Potato Predicament, which is based on the um, the story of George Crum, who is some people credit with the invention of the potato chip. Yeah, some people credit him with the uh, with the invention of crisps. Yes, depending exactly. where, on where you live. And in Japan, yes. potato chips are kumushakwai. Oh really? <laughs> I have I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I apologize to all my Japanese listeners. Um, I once I once called a woman a cucumber in Tokyo. Um, so anyway, so tell us tell us a little bit about Gwendolyn's uh, pet garden, uh, which um, I think is a remarkable idea. Um, you, you. you talk. You talk. I'll shut up. Okay. Um, well, Gwendolyn's pet garden. The inspiration, like many of my books, actually uh, came from uh, one of my nieces, Emma, who uh, desperately, desperately wants a pet and because she has allergies and for a number of other reasons, she can't, like her parents said, that's simply not going to happen. So um, I wanted to uh, find a happy alternative for her. And I suspected that there were other children who were in the same situation, children who live in apartment buildings that don't allow pets. Um, And so for me, um, I thought, well, if she were given either a plant or a little uh, patch of earth that she could, in which she could plant 
um, seeds, perhaps that could become her pet. And so that essentially was the uh, motivation for and the inspiration for Gwendolyn's pet garden. Okay, and the, sorry. Yes, and also the fact that in the story, there is a mention of um, a seed lending library, which I think is very innovative. And, uh, and so I wanted to introduce that to, to young readers also, and to encourage them if their community doesn't have a seed lending library to perhaps um, approach either their own library or, um, or a store that sells seeds in, in adding that to the services that, that they have. So a seed lending library um, it's a good thing. It's not an. It's not seeds for animals. No, it's seeds for plants. <laughs> That's a good thing. Uh, here, you know, here, here's your elephant back. Um, so I didn't know those existed. So you can, you can, uh, you can go to a library and get seeds. And what happens after they grow? Well, um, essentially, a seed lending library um, operates on the honor system. So you will go to the library and they will give you seeds and you will plant them. And then when your own plants grow and you harvest them, then you can um, take seeds from those plants and return them uh, to the library so that that way it is self-sustaining. Um, and, uh, and that's essentially the principle of a seed lending library. Well, that's remarkable. Sometimes the seeds need to be treated, though, before they uh, can be uh, grown. Possibly, I'm, I'm that I'm I'm not uh, aware of. But when I was a when I was when and when I was a kid in Ottawa, I tried to grow watermelons. Yes. From from watermelon seeds in the winter. Oh, okay. <laughs> this was my this was my first failed experiment as an inventor. I, 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 I did get it right. It took 50 years. Um, but anyway, so this is, this is, all, this is all incredible. Uh, how long did it take you to write it? How many versions uh, did you write? How did you find uh, this amazing publisher? Well, um, it, for, I would say that the idea, the seed of the story, uh, <laughs> um, I had it for a number of months. And then I wasn't quite sure, okay, would she be handed a plant? Would she be handed a parcel of, of land? Or, um, and so it took, I would say, probably six to eight months. Um, and then in terms of finding um, that great, the great publisher, I had submitted um, Gwendolyn's Pet Garden to an agent uh, here in Canada. And she really liked the, uh, the story. And so she um, agreed to represent me and to then submit the story to a number of publishers in Canada mm -hmm. and the United States. You're, and, al you're, you're allowed to mention your agent and be proud of Well, oh, I'm very proud of her, but she's no longer my agent. <laughs> I now have a new agent. <laughs> in that and that's case. Okay. That sometimes happens. Okay. Um, <laughs> but she was, she was wonderful. Uh, but now I do have a new wonderful agent. Um, uh, and it, so, yeah, so essentially that agent um, circulated it. And uh, and Nancy Polson of Nancy Polson Books really liked it. And she negotiated a, a great contract for me. Um, and so that was my first agented um, work. Because up until then, I had published a number of books 
with uh, Canadian publishers and one American publisher, but I had submitted them on my own. I hadn't been represented um, until then. Okay, so you don't want to mention the agent who made this Oh, it was deal? Hillary McMahon. Yes, the, the, the one who did the deal um, is Hillary McMahon. Who, she's a great agent, um, and she, is, uh, she works in Toronto. She's with an agency in Toronto. And right now I'm with another agent uh, who's also in Toronto because Toronto is sort of like Mecca for Canadian publishing, for Canadian children's publishing, um, the same way New York is for in, in the United States. Um, and I'm with um, Olga Felina, who is uh, who started a, a new agency with two other agents. Um, and so Olga has been representing me for almost a year now. Wonderful. That's great. So do you have any secrets? Anything coming out that you want to divulge now? Um, sure. Uh, I have three, or there should be three books coming out in 2022. And two of them are in French because I, as you know, I, I write in French as well as in English. And there is one who is coming out that should be coming out um, this year with another uh, American publisher, which Olga um, negotiated the contract uh, with called Raycraft and um, yeah. and it's yes and they're doing another picture book biography because I've done a few picture book biographies and so they're um, they really liked a story that um, we pitched to them about this Frenchman who literally built a castle with his bare hands um, in France and um, and he is known or he's considered um, by many as the father of naive art um, uh, much in the same style of, as Gaudi and uh, and so yes he, he uh, and that that book um, I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing it because I think if I'm not mistaken they contracted um, an illustrator from Romania and I saw the pencil drawings and they're great. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the finished product. That's so wonderful. Sometimes they don't show the authors the pictures at all before they're finished. No, but I have that written in my contract ah. <laughs> because I'm a bit of a control freak and I, I like to, and, and I admit I'm, I'm a control freak. And so, um, and so, and most, um, most of publishers really are, are quite happy to do that. Um, to, so that I can see the, the pencil drawings before color is, is added, because once color is added, it's, it's more difficult to change an illustration. But I get to see the, the line drawings and then sort of the, the first drafts. Um, and I comment on those and then they come back with a more finalized version of the illustrations months later. Um, so yes, I, I do have that in my contract and I also have the, it, because as you know, it's usually the publisher that chooses the illustrator. I mean, I can certainly um, suggest and that publisher has the, um, the last word, but I also have it in my contract that I'm part of the, I guess the selection process if you want. Um, and, and again, publishers are very open. Most publishers are fine with that because they appreciate, you know, having the input. Um, but after that, it's, I, I never really get to meet the illustrator unless they live in Montreal and or or have any contact with them because it's the editor that's the point person 
and everything goes through is filtered through the editor. Uh, so that's uh, that's uh, quite unusual, um, and you are unusual in the sense that uh, you do appreciate that out of thousands and thousands of people who want to write for children, uh, very few get contracts, very few uh, have uh, multiple books under their belt, uh, very few have uh, wonderful agents, um, and so you are maybe not one in a million, but let's say one in half a million. Um, and it's important for my listeners to appreciate that the people I'm interviewing are really, really, really super special. Oh, that's uh, very kind, Mal. Um, but my next question is, how did that happen? <laughs> how did that happen? Well, how did that the, happen? Exactly. Um, I think the first rule of, of writing for children is that rejection is a very, very big part of this process. And, but if you are okay with that, and if you persevere, because I think that's really the, um, the key, is to just keep on plugging away at it. Um, like so many people at the beginning, when I started writing, I wrote my, my manuscripts, I sent them out, I collected enough rejection letters to wallpaper a room. I mean, it was just, that's all I got. Um, but uh, what really kept me going is I then started submitting to magazines, to children's magazines. And uh, because a lot of it is supply and demand. So magazines, um, they need a lot more material than publishers. So they need fiction, nonfiction, uh, recipes, craft projects. So I started submitting to Highlights for Kids, uh, Spider, Cricket, um, all of those magazines. And lo and behold, they started um, accepting my work. So that in itself was tremendous validation for me because that told me that I did have a voice because writing is very solitary. Um, I'm not part of a writing group. I'm not, you know, I just would write on my own in my, in my home and that was it. Because um, everyone is, is sort of, well, I, I was very, you know, when you're at the beginning, you're so green, you, you don't, you just learn as you go. Um, but the fact that magazines were actually accepting my work, that told me that, okay, then perhaps there is a possibility that eventually I will end up with a book. Um, so there's that that was happening. But also at the time, I was working for McGill University. And uh, I was working for the AIDS Research Center. And this was in the 90s. And I knew that, um, and there's a book that came uh, out written by a doctor, Margaret Merrifield, entitled, it was a kid's book, entitled Come Sit By Me. And this book was about a child in a daycare who, uh, who the children in the daycare, their parents did not want them to play with her. So this child was experiencing discrimination in, in this particular daycare. And I knew that it was just a question of time that this would happen here in Montreal. Um, we had the highest number of AIDS cases, uh, certainly in the province and quite possibly in, in the whole country, uh, because a lot of people came to Montreal to be treated. And, um, and so when this book came out in English, I approached a French publisher and I said, I, I see that there's a need for this book. I will translate it if you will publish it. And they said, 
okay, we will do that. And and so that was my sort of first, along with the writing for magazines, that was pretty much my first experience. And um, and sure enough, it was just a few months later that this child, I mean, it was in the newspapers that this child, because she was, um, they had to administer AZT, which was at that time one of the only drugs available for people with AIDS, um, they put two and two together and uh, and it just sort of blew up in terms of what was happening in, in the daycare. The parents were very, very concerned for the children. So, so then I started this whole program, this educational program throughout the province to go in and talk to the daycare workers that we had nurses and they would go in and talk to them about universal precautions and how to, you know, what to do. And so that, um, that's sort of how I, I came to, you know, publishing. And then later on, um, in 1995, it was the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the Netherlands. And, and there was tremendous coverage. Oh, your um, Tulip book. Exactly. So that was, so there was tremendous coverage um, on the news in 1995 because so many of our veterans went back to uh, the Netherlands to um, essentially to be celebrated, to mark the 50th anniversary. And I remember watching this coverage on TV and thinking, oh my God, our, 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 our veterans are being honored and they were, you know, they, they were parading and they looked so proud and children and adults were cheering them on. And, and I thought, how sad that these these generations of kids know what Canadians did during the, the Second World War. And here in Canada, a lot of, I certainly wasn't clued into what had gone on. And then my uncle came back because he had been part of the liberating troops and he told me his story. And I thought, this is the story I want to tell. This is the story. I want to honor him. I want to tell the story of why we have a tulip festival. <clears throat> and uh and include his his story within that book so um and that book came out in 2004 now unfortunately the original publisher no longer exists but then in 2014 the um Fitzhenry and Whiteside or Whitecap actually which is an imprint of Fitzhenry of Whiteside they um they said we want to publish it. And so we revised it and reformatted it and and brought it up to date because a decade had gone on. Um, had, and so it it came out again. Um, and so the book is sold every year at um, at the Tulip Festival and of course, you know, Amazon and all of that. So that was my first published book. Wonderful. And of course, as a someone who grew up in Canada in in Ottawa, I can really relate to the uh, to the tulips. Yes, and I went to university for a year at Ottawa U, and um, and my brother, I mean, he completed his his degree at Ottawa U, and we had the tulip festival every year. And of course, I never wondered why. And then when uh, and then when I looked into it, I thought, oh, this is very this is fascinating mm -hmm. how every year we're gifted with these tulip bulbs. Well, and yeah, at, le at least in my, my generation, we knew I, I, I knew that this was a gift from from the Dutch uh, people. Really? Oh, because yeah. I I wasn't. And when I when I decided to write the story, 
I wanted to make sure it hadn't already been done and it hadn't been done. Um, So I was certainly it hadn't been done for kids. And so that made it all the more appealing for publishers. Wonderful. So I want to take you back now. Okay. To uh, where you come from. Uh, That's also important. Uh, you're a, you're, you're a, a, a Canadian, a real Canadian. Yeah, I'm a, a real, real Canadian. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I think we're all real Canadians. <laughs> some of us were born here. Some of some us of, weren't. Some of us more than others. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yes, I was born in Quebec. I mm-hmm. was raised in, in the province of Quebec. Um, and my parents, uh, my mother is English, and my father is French. So my mother tongue is English. And uh, I went to school for primary and secondary in French. Uh, and, uh, and and then I switched over to English no, for well, university it, it, and college. It, it, in your house? Yes. Um, what, what language did you speak to your dad in? Mainly English. Really? Mainly English, he, yes. He, he was born where? He was born in uh, Cap La Madeleine, mm-hmm. um, but he was raised in Bohornois, which is about half an hour from Montreal. And, and um, your mom was born where? My mom was, I believe she was born in Bohornois um, mm-hmm. and again, raised in Bohornois. And that's where they met. And, uh, but, and so they, they met, they married. Um, I was born in Valleyfield, but I was raised in Bohornois up until the age of 10. And then we moved up north in northern Quebec because there was this town that was essentially being built. Uh, Domtar was opening up a pulp and paper mill. And uh, and so we, we moved up, up there with the black flies. <laughs> um, and uh, the population when I left uh, 10 years later was 5,000. So going up, when we arrived there, there was... There was hardly anything. Um, you're, you're a Canadian pioneer, and we did. We we pioneered this this town um, in the Abitibi region, yeah. and um, where there was the literally your closest grocery store was like an hour away, um, and uh, and you had to you know you had to fly out for everything for you know doctor whatever. Um, I mean, eventually we did get a doctor and we did get a hospital and, and, but our first year of schooling was actually in the pulp and paper mill because we, there was no school. Um, and, uh, and the nuns taught us in, in the pulp and paper mill. Um, so that was, yes, that was quite the experience, but it was mainly a Francophone town. Um, and in Bohornois, all of my friends were Francophones. So if I wanted to play with anyone, I had to learn the language. And so that's how I learned the language. Um, and then I went to Francophone, I went to French school. So I learned, you know, French grammar and all of that. But at home, we, mo- we watched mostly um, English TV, spoke English. I read mostly English books. Um, and so that's why I, I mean, we flip flop back and forth unconsciously, really, um, from one language to the other. And, and, but, and that served me so well because... I, I write all of my stories in English, but then I translate them into French so that I can submit them to all that many more publishers. Incroyable. 
so uh, now you know I'm I'm getting to my uh, pet theory here. Okay. Uh, you write for little children. Yes. Uh, which I think is a great. It, it's not. It's not a job. It's not a profession. It's some kind of mission in life to write for young people. I think so. Yes. But I think that those of us that write for five-year-olds are actually stuck at the age of five. Do you want to support this theory <laughs> to refute it? Well, what, what, what do you like at the age of five? I, I would like to partially refute it um, because in my head, I'm not five. I might be 16. Okay. Um, and so in order to conduct the research that I need to, to and, and the methodology that, uh, and the discipline, I would have to be a little older than five. But I think in, in my heart, and there is a part of my brain that, yes, still thinks like um, a five, because my books, you're, you're right, I write for either five to eight-year-olds, and for example, in the case of the Tulip book, it's, um, I think it's nine to 12 year olds because there's a lot of research that's done and it, the sub, it's much more dense in terms of word count. Um, and I, 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 bring in, um, I, I bring in the Holocaust and, and a, a lot of other uh, difficult uh, topics that you wouldn't find necessarily in a, a book for five to eight year olds or three to five year olds. So, um, but yes, there is, I think that in my heart, um, I am uh, still very much a child. Okay, so um, talk to me about that for a moment, if you wish. The process of, of yeah, writing? No, I, I, I'll tell you why, Anne. You know, nobody is, is holding a gun at our heads and telling us that we have to write picture books for, for young children. No. You're right. You do it out of love. Yes. You do it out of love and passion and volition. And, yes. And um, I think that we're trying to say something to our five-year-old. What are you trying to say to your five-year-old? Um, well, I, I don't know if I'm trying to say anything to my five-year-old self. I think it helps to have part of my brain uh, still... Uh, it, five-year-old and part of my heart five-year-old but you're right we don't do it we certainly don't do it for the money um because there i could not live of off of what i make um i think most of us have full-time jobs and we do this as an aside um and the the motivation um again i think that there's a part i want to leave a part of me behind um, I, this essentially would be my legacy. I don't have children. I mean, I have a, num a whole bunch of nieces who inspire me. Um, but there are messages that I want, essentially, because um, to me, also, writing is a creative act. And so I, on my website, kids ask me, well, why do you write? Well, because I really don't sing well, and I don't dance well. So I try to write as well as I can. Um, so that's the, the answer that I usually give them um, because it's not, it, I mean, sometimes it feels like root canal. It's, it's not an easy process, but there are moments of bliss where you're sort of in the zone and, and words are coming at you and you're thinking, wow, this is good. 
Um, and so, so for those moments, I live for those moments, who are very few and far between. Um, but as I said, it's part of the legacy. So for me, it was very, well, a bloom of friendship was was an, was an act of love, essentially. For my, my uncle, I wanted to preserve his story because I realized that once a veteran dies, if he has not imparted his stories with anyone, then those stories die with him. And so it was very important for me to preserve my uncle's story. And there are other testimonials in that book. So that there was that. Um, and also just bringing, I want, um, back in the 90s, I, and I still have this piece of paper, and I had written um, something, a sentence saying that I wanted to um, entertain and educate and um, and there was another something else and, and I don't know if it was enlightened but anyway children with my books and I folded that piece of paper and I kept it with me in my wallet and I still have it today and uh, and so because sometimes if you put the thing you know what you want out into the world it it sometimes happens and so this is why because I want to entertain and um, and educate and inspire kids uh, with my books. So if Gwendolyn's pet can be of any benefit to a child who desperately wants a pet, but for whatever reason can't, then this would be an alternative. Or, or, um, to, or to a parent. Or to a parent, exactly. Who wants to explain why you, ha you can't have a St. Bernard. Yes, because you live in a three and a half, you know, it's just not going to happen. And so, um, and also for, and again, they, I don't get a lot of fan mail, but I do get um, the odd email from a parent who tells me things like, oh, you've instilled the love of reading in my child. I mean, it does not get better than that. Absolutely. Um, and so for all of these reasons, um, I guess that is why I write. So, and I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm working out any issues uh, that, you know, I may have gone through as a child, because I do know that for a lot of authors, that is a means to, to work out, um, which, you know, what they've gone through, it's very cathartic. Yes, you're, you're a, a, an example of that. Ask it, anyone I know. Uh, there you go. Um, but the, the idea of family is very present in my books. And, the, and there are books where it's to help kids who have low self-esteem. And I think, I'm, I think we are all a bit victim of low self-esteem. I know I am. Um, because I think if we all had you know, so a, a high, um, if we valued ourselves mm -hmm. a bit more. So when you were five or six years old, did you, do you remember having low self-esteem? In retrospect, uh, I think as a kid, I did have low self-esteem, yes. Um, and so, so some of my books are, uh, again, just reminders, oh, well, you may not be able to do this, but oh, look at all the other things that you can do. And so these are tools to raise a child's um, self-esteem. So that uh, also uh, is present. Uh, and I, I, I will take that as a yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and so, so yes, yeah, so for, for Mel, so Mel, for all of these reasons, um, 
because I think for each writer, the, the reasons are very, you know, they're personal and, and they're, they're different and they're unique. And so I know this is the long winded version of why I write, but yes, this is why I write. No, it's, it's beautiful. You see, because I'm interviewing people that are successful, that have published books recently with traditional publishers. And you and I both know that this is one in a zillion and you've published many and, and really beautiful books with top publishers. Uh, but um, the, 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 the interviews have two purposes. First of all, to understand your process and your life and how you reached what you did. And also as an encouragement to other writers um, that the, it can happen to you. Absolutely, because I tell that, I, that's exactly what I say to people. If I can do it, you can do it. There is no reason why, if that is what you have set your, your mind and your heart to, then absolutely, and it's just tenacity. Um, yeah, but tenacity, have... Anne, is like the A, A, to, A to Z. Um, because uh, as somebody who's, uh, who's written for decades, uh, it's very easy to lose faith. You know, some people get uh, rejected um, three or four times and say, oh, you know, you can get rejected hundreds of times. What, I have three questions to ask you. Uh, what is your advice for, for, for the people who have enough rejections to fill a wall, including me? Um, well, if you, the first thing is if you want to write for kids, you have to read kids' books. You read. You you read in the genre that you want to write in. You read anything and everything. I mean, I, I always have a book going, and it could be for, you know, it could be a YA. It could be for, you know, an y, adult YA, novel. Young adult. I, exactly. Um, it could be a middle grade. It could be it could be a picture book. I mean, I read extensively and on all kinds of topics. Um, know that. Um, yes, it, if you, that rejection is a huge, huge part of the process. Um, and it's, it's really, you have to develop a thick skin um, and you have to be resilient. When I would get rejection letters, yes, I was disappointed, but I would tell myself, I am just one step closer to being published. It was, it was always there um, as a possibility. And um, I, I guess I never doubted. I didn't know when it would happen, but I, I had a pretty good idea that it, it would happen. From the moment that my first um, article was published, I thought, okay, then if someone recognizes that I do have a voice, then, you know, that's good. It, it's very good. And I so would encourage it, people yeah, so to that, write that's a, that's a terrific story because you, you went from the low esteem to the uh, to the medium esteem to the medium esteem yes yeah because <laughs> yes because I, I think i still very much suffer from um in french it's the uh, the, the syndrome de l'imposteur which is the the imposter syndrome where yes. someday they're going to find out that no i really can't work <laughs> put a sentence together no, but, you know i i read a lot of children's books and you are right up there uh and so um I have two requests from you. Can you please read a little bit of Gwendolyn's Pet Garden? Show sure. us some of the pictures and mention sure. the illustrator. And then I have one last question. Okay. 
So the illustrator is uh, Rasheen Kyrie, brilliant um, uh, New York illustrator. Who, who I didn't you help, know. Who you helped cho choose. Well, actually, no. In this case, I had suggested others, ah, okay. um, but they came back and said, oh, we think Rasheen would be great. And I thought, okay, I don't know Rasheen, but, and they sent me a link to her portfolio. And I, I thought, yes, this works for me. So it, it was a very easy decision. Um, so if you want, I mean, I can start from the beginning and you tell me when you want me to stop. Well, read a page or two so we don't get into copyright issues. Okay. All right. Um, so Gwendolyn Newberry Fritz wanted a pet more than polka dotted boots, more than a telescope, more than anything. Gwendolyn grouched and pouted, pestered and pleaded, argued and bartered. But Gwendolyn's parents simply would not budge. Certainly not for a pet with two legs. And here we have Gwendolyn saying, can I have a cockatoo? Can I have a toucan? Can I have a macaw? Birds throw feathery fits, said father. Under no circumstances for a pet with four legs. Can I have a gerbil? Can I have a hedgehog? Can I have a chinchilla? Fur makes my nose sneeze, said mother. And listen, uh I'm going to, I, I want everybody to go, to run out and buy that book. <laughs> Thank Gwendolyn's you, Pet Garden. It just came out recently by Anne Renault. The name of the uh, illustrator again is? Is Rasheen Kyrie. She's an award-winning illustrator based in New York. And, uh, and published by the fantastic Nancy Paulson books. Yes, exactly. An imprint of Penguin. And uh, last question. Yes. Um, as somebody who was once an inventor, you've written many books about inventors. Yes, I did. Can you just share a few sentences about that before we go? Because I'm intrigued. I, oh, okay. I, you know, well, whenever, most of the time, when I choose my topic, I think, okay, if I were a kid, what would interest me? And as a kid, I thought, I think, well, if you have inventions by kids, now that would be interesting to kids. So, um, so one that I had discovered when I was re researching another topic was the invention of the popsicle by Frank Epperson, who got the idea when he was 10 or 11, and then it sort of, you know, stayed in the back of his mind, and uh, he then um, developed it when he was an adult. So there was that that I thought, oh, kids are going to like this. I mean, what is there not to like? I mean, it's popsicles. It's a kid who invents it. Um, so it has to, that'll, they'll, they'll eat that up, as we say. And, and then there's, um, this one is in French, uh, Les Oreilles de Chester, which is Chester's Ears, which is um, the story of Chester Greenwood, which many credit for the invention of earmuffs. Again, the idea he got when he was a kid and he he actually um set up uh an earmuff uh company in his town and employed a lot of the citizens and he popularized them um and so that that's where i i got that and then of course there's mr crumb who is partially based on folklore but he's a real person mr crumb really did exist and what I loved about that book, among, and the book is great, but the back matter 
where you yes. come out where you come out and say you know we're not sure because many writers you know they credit people uh, based on I don't know Wikipedia biographies and so on and mm. and as an inventor I can tell you that um, it's much more complicated. Oh, it is absolutely. It's rarely it's rarely one person who invented the exactly. airplane, uh, the car, the bicycle. So uh, I was very happy to see that. Um, yes. No, you're right. You have to be honest to your readers. And uh, and even at the very beginning of the book, I think it says it's mm. it's this is a story that has a dollop of truth. And, and so the reader knows from the beginning that, well, they should take it with a grain of salt, essentially. Oh, uh, oh that <laughs> potato chips. There you go. Okay, you know, I, I think that we we should uh, we should end the conversation on this high note, um, that you should take everything with a pinch of salt, uh, and uh, except for popsicles. Yes. Uh, Anne Renault, uh, it was uh, so exciting to speak to you. Thank and, you so uh, much for the uh, New Books Network. Uh, Mel Rosenberg signing off here, and uh, wonderful to meet and to talk about you, to talk about you and to talk with you about your wonderful craft. Oh, thank you, thank so you much. again. And, uh, thank merci, you, Mouse. Me, merci beaucoup. Ah, de rien. Ça m'a fait plaisir. Ah, pour moi. À tout à l'heure. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.